In December of 1998, the Thai Incorporated Holiday Party was rocking and rolling. After building a massive plush empire on the backs of Beanie Babies, the company had a lot to celebrate. Just that year, Thai's sales topped $1.3 billion, dominating the toy industry. In just a few years, CEO and founder Ty Warner had become a very rich man, and he wanted to show his employees his appreciation. Warner announced that he was giving each and every employee of Ty Incorporated a holiday bonus equivalent to their annual salary. For some salespeople, that could be as much as $800,000. The crowd went wild. But wait, there was more. To commemorate the fact that their sales in 98 had beaten every other toy company, Warner also gave each employee a custom red bear with number one stitched onto the chest. The heart-shaped red and yellow tie tags attached to the bear's ears explained that only 253 of them had been produced. These gifts obviously had sentimental value. But the more practical employees also knew that such a rare beanie would fetch a hefty resale price on eBay, a growing trend since the toys first caught on at the end of 1995. It looked like the prices of the bean-filled toys might just climb indefinitely. But of course, as the old adage goes, what goes up must come down. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. A show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our eighth episode on the dark side of the 90s. As every decade brings new challenges, a rosy tint has started to color these bygone years. But all this nostalgia obscures the more unpleasant bits of 90s history. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Last week, we talked about the dominant phenomenon that was Michael Jordan and the 1990s Chicago Bulls. Today, we'll focus our attention on a very different topic. The collectible, adorable, bean-filled plush toys that defined an era. Beanie Babies. After appearing on the scene in the early 90s, Beanie Babies became one of the decade's most frothy, colorful fads. But the beanies' outward cuteness belied the desperation they brought out in people. Not only would they be traded like stocks, but adults, more than anyone, would do nearly anything in order to collect them all. We'll see how the stuffing is made right after this. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. 
with more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from 50 to $500. Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The first nine Beanie Babies were unleashed on the world in November of 1993, including Legs the Frog, Brownie the Bear, Chocolate the Moose, and Pinchers the Lobster. But this first batch was far from the last. In the end, upwards of 2,000 different models were made over the next 10 years. If you ask Ty Warner, the creator of Beanie Babies, what made his signature toy so special, he'd likely reflect on the unique combination of understuffing and plastic pellets. Both contributed to their general floppiness and posability, making them perfect for sitting up in display windows or on shelves. Or Warner might point to his meticulous attention to detail in designing every animal, how he agonized over the perfect colors, material, and beady black eyes. It was undeniable that Warner's obsession over every aspect of the beanies gave them a certain je ne sais quoi. They were fun on various levels, fun to look at, play with, and for many people in the 90s, to collect. This much Warner anticipated, but at the outset, he had no idea that his company's playthings would become a must-have commodity for children and adults alike. These stuffed animals would not only worm their way into people's hearts, they would drive them to do things they wouldn't normally, like bringing a teddy bear to college, or taking it on a cross-country business trip, or sinking one's life savings into collecting hundreds of plush toys. And Ty Warner knew it. Writer Zach Bissonette pointed out an interesting peculiarity about the plush industry in his book, The Great Beanie Baby Bubble. As he found, the few entrepreneurs who did make fortunes from selling stuffed animals all came from dark childhoods. To this point, Ty Warner didn't break the mold. Warner and his sister are said to have received little in the way of love or support from their parents during their Chicago upbringing in the 40s and 50s. Their mother, Georgia, reportedly demanded that her husband beat the children with a belt as discipline. Not wanting to upset her, their father, Harold, obliged. Georgia was later diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. This condition obviously complicated Warner's relationship with his mother. Unfortunately, his bond with his dad was equally fraught. According to Bissonette, Warner envied his father's charm and when his parents later divorced, he went out of his way to seduce Harold's new girlfriends out of competitive jealousy. That same drive to succeed at all costs, no matter how questionable the goal, would go on to guide Ty Warner's professional life. He got his start in the 1970s as a salesman for the Dakin Toy Company, the largest manufacturer of plush toys at the time. Harold Warner reportedly pulled some strings to get his son the gig, but Ty would later claim that he got the job for himself. This was a bit of a trend. From the very beginning, Warner took care to craft his image as a completely self-made man. He revised his personal history routinely, leaving out any mention of those who'd helped him along the way. Warner's co-workers at Dakin claimed that he had no close friendships during his time there. He was too laser-focused on honing his one true skill. 
As one former employee of Warner's colorfully put it, he was a master of selling useless shoot to people and making it seem really important. In fact, he was readying to make his own go at the toy business alone. Throughout the 70s, Warner pilfered all the information he could from Dakin about running a successful toy company. Then, unconcerned with corporate taboos, he started developing his own ideas and secretly pitching them to clients. In 1980, when his side hustle was discovered, he was promptly fired. But Warner didn't dwell on his misfortune. It was the perfect opportunity to start his own endeavor, Thai Incorporated. Finally, he could indulge his insatiable desire for control. From the beginning, everything at his new company was about him, starting with the name. In day-to-day operations, Warner asserted his dominance over the company. Even though his name was literally on every piece of merchandise, the tags of each stuffed animal were emblazoned with a bold T-Y, He allegedly insisted employees address him as Mr. Warner or even owner. Warner further tightened his grip on Thai Incorporated by personally designing and approving every single item that the company produced, starting with a line of plush Himalayan cats, the precursor to the Beanie Babies we know now. He is said to have never hired a marketing team or focus group. His opinion was the only one that mattered. Warner also insisted on selling only to mom-and-pop shops, or independent retailers who had far less bargaining power than the big-box stores. That way, Thai Incorporated could set the prices however high Warner desired, and the little guys had no room to barter. And as an added bonus, Warner liked the idea that his products would make up a significant chunk of these shops' business. Thai Incorporated had them buy the stuffing so to speak. But even as Warner solidified his monopoly on the beanbag toy market, he was terrified that he might lose business to a competitor. The CEO was incredibly paranoid about people stealing his ideas. The back of Thai Incorporated's 1989 catalog even relayed this message to any potential copycats. Warning, if anyone dare copy our creative designs or patents without written permission, Ownership of your eternal soul passes to us, and we have the right to negotiate the sale of said soul. Furthermore, our attorneys will see to it that life on Earth as you know it is not worth living. Seems reasonable. But it wasn't until 1993 that Warner finally had the billion-dollar idea that might warrant such an intense copyright. Warner theorized that filling plush toys with tiny plastic beans would create more flexible and realistic playthings than traditional stuffing. When Thai Incorporated launched the first line of Beanie Babies in November of 1993, Warner thought he had a hit on his hands. But in the first year, they barely sold at all, even at the low price of $5 a pop. Still, Warner was supremely confident he could make the beanies a bestseller. The following June, he doubled down and released a slew of 20 new babies. In January of 1995, he followed up with even more. It was a risky gamble, throwing good money on an unproven product, but he had faith that the beanie babies would catch on. 
95 was a big turning point for Thai Incorporated. That year, the idea of retiring products came into play through a happy accident, and it held the power to change the company's position dramatically. Customers were upset when Lovey the Lamb, one of the most popular animals, had to be discontinued due to supplier issues. But three brothers who worked at Thai's trade shows decided to tell buyers that Lovey had been retired instead. These words were magic. A simple reframing shifted everything. Rather than be angry that they couldn't purchase Lovey, beanie enthusiasts looked to the lambs that were already out there with new appreciation. They could be collector's items, even. After Warner learned of this tactic, he realized how lucrative it was. In fact, the idea was so good that he later claimed it was his own. Warner pocketed the retirement trick in case he ran into production issues with other toys. Luckily for the time being, everything was full steam ahead. Beanie Baby sales shot up over the Christmas season of 1995, largely due to the launch of the Thai Incorporated website. By early 1996, the toys had become a must-have with children. Seeing the understuffed plushies tucked into the backpacks of school kids was proof the craze was spreading. The epicenter of the mania was Chicago, where the company was headquartered and had the biggest footprint. In light of this, in February of 1996, Warner was offered $2 million to sell off the Beanie Babies line. He turned down the deal point blank. Ty Warner knew he had created something much more valuable and a growing rise in sales was about to prove him right. Coming up, Beanie Baby Mania takes over the world, causing even rational people to throw money at piles of plush. Now, back to the story. When Ty Warner's eponymous toy company released the first line of Beanie Babies in 1993, they were a bit of a flop. But by early 1996, the bean-filled plushies had found their stride, thanks to a jazzy new website and a growing fan base. There was just something about the understuffed animals that drew people in. For all the chaos that the mania eventually unleashed, the origins were small, humble even. From the first moment that Dr. Paula Benchik Abranko saw Beanie Babies in a hospital gift shop in early 1996, she was hooked. She bought several dozen, which she excitedly shared with her sister, Peggy Gallagher. Immediately, the pair began assembling personal collections. When their friends became interested, the sisters helped them get started, too. A small but growing cohort of suburban women started spending their weekends hunting for beanies. They couldn't get enough of the understuffed animals, and their excitement was contagious. When these collectors realized that some Beanie Babies had been retired and were harder to find, they were willing to pay premiums to get them. In March of 1996, these coveted beanies were going for $10 or $25, compared to their original $5 which led to more and more people getting in on the trend, seeing there was a possibility to quickly double or triple their investment. And these dividends were just the beginning. 
To help other collectors, Peggy Gallagher also began sending out a price list of what Beanie Babies were going for in the secondary market. What she didn't disclose was that these prices were pretty biased and based on what Peggy herself was willing to charge or pay. But despite their arbitrary nature, these numbers became the foundation of the entire speculative market. As enthusiastic collectors began to compile their checklists of all the Beanie Babies in circulation, they realized there were a few that were almost impossible to find. The hunt for these oddities took the nascent baby craze to the next level. Take, for instance, Peanut, the Royal Blue Elephant. Only a few thousand royal blue peanuts were made before Warner changed the color to a lighter, more kid-friendly shade. The switch made the royal blue elephant a white whale, so to speak, fetching up to $5,000 at the height of the fad. In his pursuit of perfection, Warner would continue to frequently change designs after a first production run, just like with Peanut the Elephant. As people caught on to this trend, they became eager to buy his plushies immediately, on the off chance that they would become extremely rare and thus extremely valuable. At just $5 a pop, it was worth it to roll the dice. Knowing this, Warner began to wield the power of the retirement ace for maximum profit, of course. He would visit stores, and if he saw certain animals weren't selling well, he'd retire them to clear inventory. Alternatively, Warner would also retire babies that were already hard to find. This drove collectors deeper into mania, inciting them to buy as many beanies as they could. They bought out of fear, worried that there might not be another opportunity to get their hands on the coveted animals. While this strategic manipulation was capitalism at its best, or worst rather, Ty's tactics got even more grim. He demanded that retired Beanie Babies be destroyed so that the pellets inside could be sold back to their factories in Asia. Nothing was spared in the name of profit. Warner also started utilizing more subtle avenues, like the Thai website, to control the toy market. Every month, one beanie was selected by popular vote, becoming the Info Beanie. Thai employee Lena Trevetti would then post announcements online in the saccharine voice of that animal. But while her tone was pure fluff, the actual content was serious business. The messages contained subtle hints about upcoming new products and retirements. Speculators would then use these tips to inform their decisions about what to buy or sell. Those who could read the tea leaves, so to speak, stood to make thousands of dollars. But of course, the ultimate beneficiary of this system was Thai Incorporated, as the website was the most direct way to influence the primary market. The online messages were one of the easiest ways to cue people to open their wallets. It didn't matter if it was a new animal or one that was about to be retired. They were ready to buy. And retirement announcements on Ty's website didn't just impact the primary retail market. They also sent the secondary market into a tizzy, prompting investors who were hoarding the valuable merchandise to sell. Fortunately for the rabid fans, eBay was just a click away, and Beanie Babies were selling like hotcakes. 
The rise of the online auction site in late 1995 contributed to the perfect storm that was the Beanie Baby craze. Serious collectors gathered there, knowing exactly what they wanted to buy and willing to shell out top dollar for it. And of course, there was a huge group of sellers looking to cash in on their rare finds. Beanie Babies and eBay were a match made in heaven. In 1998 alone, Beanie Baby-related transactions made up a whopping 10% of eBay's sales, and prices continued to rise. According to author Zach Bissonnette, on eBay, Beanie Babies sold for an average of $30, six times the price they had originally retailed for. With the secondary market humming along, Ty Warner remained focused on juicing the primary market for everything it was worth. He kept his cards close to his chest, though. The Thai Incorporated CEO maintained an aura of mystery in his business dealings, even when it adversely affected the retailers he relied on to make millions. Warner refused to let anyone outside the company in on specifics, from how many toys were being made to where they were being sold. Even distributors who made and paid for orders couldn't be sure when or if the inventory would actually be delivered. This left the mom-and-pop shops, which Warner specifically targeted, in an impossible position. They had no idea how to maintain stock to keep themselves afloat. But Warner knew he had them at his mercy. If they wanted any of his merchandise, which was flying off the shelves, they had to play by his rules. Some store owners didn't like being manipulated and stopped carrying Ty's products on principle. But many retailers stayed in business with Ty, since as Warner had calculated, Beanie Baby sales made up a huge portion of their total revenue. At the end of the day, Warner's ruthless and layered strategy worked. The air of uncertainty over stock, paired with the secondary market driving up resale values, took the frenzy to a fever pitch. But even this off-the-charts demand didn't satisfy Warner. He only grew more paranoid that someone else would swoop in to capitalize on his hard work. After creating a bankable market for bean-filled toys, Warner became terrified of losing control of it. When other companies encroached on his territory, Thai Incorporated flexed its corporate muscle by launching aggressive lawsuits. They even sued a company called Holy Bears, which sold teddies with Bible references on them. It seemed that as far as Warner was concerned, not even God could take a cut of the plush action without his approval. There wasn't much of the divine in the increasing commercialization of stuffed animals. And in 1997, the commodification of cute rose to a whole new level. Married couple Les and Sue Fox decided to cash in on the Beanie Baby craze by publishing a guide for investors, the Beanie Baby Handbook. The title was just further proof that the toys had been commodified to unreasonable proportions. No other such manual existed for Barbies or X-Men figurines, and the contents were even more cynical. The book contained detailed price lists and projections for how much certain Beanie Babies would be worth 10 years into the future. These predictions were extremely optimistic, 
The authors forecast that in a decade, every single Beanie Baby would be worth at least eight times its purchase price. The way the foxes presented it, this was an incredible return on investment for a stuffed animal. The publication of the handbook certainly cemented that Beanie Babies were no longer toys intended for children. They were adult investments that kids should never touch. That would jeopardize their resale value. And for collectors like Paula Benchik Abrinko and Peggy Gallagher, who got in on the ground floor, their investments were now paying major dividends. Gallagher in particular went the extra mile to invest. She tracked down the number for Ty's distributor in Germany and got them to ship her $2,000 worth of Beanie Babies from Europe. Then she turned around and flipped them in the States for more than $300,000. Beans to Riches stories like hers inspired droves of people to cash in on the fad, hoping prices would continue to rise and they could turn a profit for themselves. Which major corporations took note of. And though Ty Warner hadn't been interested in licensing deals up to that point, one opportunity was so big, he was willing to make an exception. McDonald's proposed a beanie deal that would ultimately net Thai Incorporated $100 million. In April of 1997, the fast food giant began a limited promotion that included miniaturized teeny beanie babies with every Happy Meal. Naturally, children were the prime targets for the toys. However, it was adults that went absolutely nuts over the teeny beanies. When ordering Happy Meals, some would even tell the cashiers to hold the food and just give them the toys. The promotion was more successful than anyone anticipated, maybe too successful. Stores soon had to impose per-customer limits to keep demand in check. To get around this, some crafty collectors hid disguises in their cars. Even level-headed adults slid into the hysteria. Take actor Chris Robinson. After his heyday starring as Dr. Rick Weber on General Hospital, he turned his attention to playing the Beanie Baby market. In his quest to collect as many of the toys as possible, his children had to eat so many Happy Meals that they became physically ill. Stomach turning as it was, other scenarios were much worse. Crowds became so intense that McDonald's stopped airing TV commercials to protect their employees from being overrun. And in Florida, a teenage McDonald's employee was arrested after stealing $6,000 worth of teeny beanie babies from a restaurant. The relentless desire ultimately pushed the chain to end its promotion early. And though it had incited chaos, no one could deny it hadn't worked. In just two weeks, they sold out of every single teeny beanie. In the end, the McDonald's promotion transformed the competitive but still somewhat niche collector's market for beanies into mainstream mania. Now soccer moms had to compete with every Tom, Dick, and Harry who wanted a piece of the action. Numbers released by USA Weekend the following year confirmed the bean-filled plush fad had reached its peak. By 1998, 64% of Americans owned at least one Beanie Baby. Many owned dozens more, which was reflected quite clearly in Ty Warner's personal income. For 1998, 
he raked in over $700 million, while his company's annual sales topped $1.3 billion. But despite piles of cash and a hungry consumer base, business wasn't as gilded as it seemed. With that kind of money on the line and the increased publicity in the wake of the McDonald's promotion, a whole new issue was looming, a wave of Beanie Baby-related crime. Coming up, looking to cash in before the bubble bursts, Beanie collectors resort to theft, counterfeiting, and even murder. Now back to the story. By 1998, sales for Beanie Babies were through the roof. That year, Ty Warner's eponymous toy company crossed the $1.3 billion mark in revenue. For comparison, that was more than his top competitors Mattel and Hasbro made combined. And while Ty held a tight monopoly on the primary market, there was a booming secondary market of enthusiastic collectors willing to drop thousands of dollars for certain rare or retired animals. All of this culminated into a heady mix of high emotion and potentially high profits for collectors. After books like The Beanie Baby Handbook asserted that the toys would only increase in value, all people saw when they looked at them was dollar signs. Soon, as scarcity became a growing problem, those same fans would turn to underhanded means of getting their plush fix. On several occasions, children were literally pushed aside or trampled underfoot by greedy adults desperate to cash in on the craze. The sweet toys originally designed to give children joy were now liable to cause them bodily harm. And adults were willing to go even farther than knocking down a few kids to get their piece of the profit. In June of 1998, then 51-year-old Perry DeFreitas was charged with illegally importing 6,500 counterfeit Beanie Babies from China. According to federal authorities, DeFreitas was planning to traffic phony versions of retired beanies Peking the Panda and Liberty the Bear out of his New Jersey stationery shop for up to $2,000 a pop. Around the same time, the town of Nashua, New Hampshire became the epicenter of a string of Beanie Baby-related grifts. One of the more sensational cases involved a couple using forged checks to buy $2,400 worth of the stuffed animals. They later confessed that they sold the toys for a profit to buy heroin. The innocent plushies were being used to bankroll a drug addiction. Still, there was more to come. In addition to counterfeiting, theft became rampant. Beanie Babies were, of course, very portable. It was part of their original appeal that kids could take them to school and show them off to friends. But once beanies became viewed as hugely valuable, it was adults who capitalized on the compactness by breaking into shops and delivery trucks to snatch them up. In March of 1999, a burglar, later known as the Beanie Baby Bandit, lifted around 200 of the stuffed animals from a stationery shop in Centerport, New York. Though he was apprehended, the stolen loot was never recovered. Similar circumstances were becoming clear across the country. While investigating organized crime in Columbus, Ohio in 1998, 
police were shocked to stumble upon $20,000 worth of Beanie Babies. They thought they were out to bust a stolen goods racket, but instead, authorities found a purple princess bear discarded at the scene. The sergeant at the scene realized that the bear was worth $400, thanks to his three beanie-obsessed daughters. The black market for Beanie Babies would only grow more dangerous. In Sherman Oaks in 1998, a masked man held up a California gift shop at gunpoint for $5,000 worth of Beanie Babies. It seemed he was prepared to kill to get his hands on the toys. Luckily, if anything about this situation can be lucky, the thief fled with his loot without firing any shots. No one was hurt in that incident, at least. An altercation in West Virginia, though, had far more grave consequences. In October of 1999, 29-year-old Jeffrey White shot 63-year-old Harry Simmons three times in the chest and once in the back of the head, killing him. They had a dispute over what amounted to a couple of hundred dollars worth of beanies. White would spend nearly half of his life behind bars for the crime. One man violently murdered and another wasting away in prison, all incited by a lust for cuddly stuffed toys, or rather, the money to be made from them. By the late 1990s, the frenzy was out of control. But just as things were getting grim, several factors came together to puncture a giant hole in the Beanie Baby bubble. At midnight on January 1st of 1999, Tie Incorporated released a line of 24 brand new Beanie Babies, their biggest drop ever. But it was too many beanies too fast. Instead of being excited to scoop up all the newest stuffed animals, many collectors actually felt discouraged. Enthusiasts who had been on the verge of completing a full collection were disheartened they'd never be able to reach their goal if Ty was just going to keep releasing dozens of new models. At that point, many of them just gave up. Warner's greed was beginning to backfire. He'd abandoned the sacred limited release strategy which had worked for years. After flooding the market, the supply that his company put out finally caught up with and then outpaced the demand, causing sales to slow. Additionally, sales on eBay were strong enough to keep the secondary market well-fed. It was becoming easier and easier for collectors to find exactly what they were looking for. No schlepping from store to store required. The auction site also made it harder to artificially manipulate prices, since people could see what other beanies were going for and only pay what they felt comfortable with. According to Zach Bissonette, on May 9, 1999, there were more than 79,000 items listed in its beanbag plush category. A grim confirmation, there were far more sellers than buyers. The market was stagnating. And Ty Warner knew it. He proceeded to change strategies, aggressively trying to diversify the products that Ty Incorporated put out. The problem was, his specialty shops only wanted to buy the signature beanies. In response, Warner was vindictive. Employees were instructed to tell store owners that if they wanted to remain in the beanie business, they had to buy Ty's less popular inventory too. 
it wasn't unlike paying protection to the mob. As far as his personal finances were concerned, Warner was worried enough over a crash that he wanted to divest, and fast. In March of 1999, he bought New York City's luxury Four Seasons Hotel for $275 million. But before he fully shifted his focus from stuffed animals to skyscrapers, he made one last attempt to milk his cash cow dry. In August of 1999, Thai Incorporated made a surprise announcement to the world. All Beanie Babies would be retired at midnight on December 31st of that same year. This incited one final brief frenzy as some diehard enthusiasts sought to finish their collections before it was too late. But most saw right through the attempt to boost sales. They didn't believe Ty would really stop selling Beanie Babies forever. And they were right. Just a few months later, in January of 2000, the company reversed course. Just like many fans predicted, Ty never intended to permanently discontinue their best-selling product. Instead of axing Beanie Babies altogether, the company announced it would release an entirely new line for the millennium, starting with a shimmering, star-spangled bear called The Beginning. That teddy was a misnomer. It marked the beginning of the end. After Warner's very transparent and failed cash grab, the animals that came next lacked the usual sparkle. Of the new line launched in March of 2000, some of the plushies included Scurry the Beetle, Glow the Lightning Bug, and Swoop the Pterodactyl. Clearly not as heartwarming as Spot the Dog. The following months were lean times for Ty. By early 2000, the secondary market was in shambles. Unlike when retired beanies would rocket in resale price, sometimes by hundreds or even thousands of dollars, now some newly retired beanies were going for just $3 a pop. That's $2 less than their retail value. But even that wasn't rock bottom. By the end of the year, the toys that once commanded top dollar had trickled down to dollar stores across the country. This was the final nail in the coffin, the outcome that Warner had feared since the very beginning. His adorable, meticulously designed toys lying in bins, forgotten and unwanted. Throughout the early 2000s, the company's sales cratered by more than 90%. In 2004, Warner was forced to claim more than $39 million in losses on his tax return. But that was nothing compared to the thousands of everyday people who lost money investing in beanies. Some even went broke after funneling life savings and college funds into the animals. Across the country, people were rudely awakened from a plush-induced dream, or nightmare, rather, as former Beanie investors eyed their empty bank accounts, they were left wondering, what happened? In short, the market crashed. Beanie Babies only had such astronomical price points because people believed they did. As soon as that belief evaporated, the profits went with it. Interestingly, this was also happening with the dot-com bubble around the same time. And we all know how that one turned out. 
While several factors aligned to inspire people to invest in beanies, ultimately, greed won out, pure and simple. Faced with a quick avenue to make a fortune, some adults rationalized their extreme behavior, all that lying, cheating, stealing, even killing, because thousands of other people were getting in on the craze too. When everyone was collectively delusional, naked capitalism didn't seem so wrong. And as for what happened to all those newly worthless toys that had been hoarded? In the years after the bust, an ironic twist became apparent. Thousands of the stuffed animals started showing up as anonymous donations to hospitals, charities, and churches. Ostensibly, one-time collectors felt their investments might have more value as toys and gifts. All it took was a few years of hysteria, speculation, theft, counterfeiting, and murder to get the Beanie Babies back where they belonged, into the arms of children. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. For more information on Beanie Babies, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Great Beanie Baby Bubble, the amazing story of how America lost its mind over a plush toy and the eccentric genius behind it, by Zach Bissonette, extremely helpful to our research. Next week, grab your flannels, because we'll be focusing on the teen spirit and youth culture of the 90s. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Nani Okwalagu, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>